Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Word of God for our special consideration this morning is our first lesson found in Genesis 2, verses 18 to 24. We read again, The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is a suitable partner for him. Out of the soil the Lord God had formed every wild animal and every bird of the sky, and he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that became its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the sky and to every wild animal, but for Adam no helper was found who was a suitable partner for him. The Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. As the man slept, the Lord God took a rib and closed up the flesh where it had been. The Lord God built a woman from the rib that he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, Now this one is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason a man will leave his father and his mother and will remain united with his wife, and they will become one flesh. This is the word of our Lord. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, there are plenty, a multitude of hot-button issues we could talk about today. This section of Genesis 2 informs what Christians have to say about lots of things that get people excited, agitated, disgusted, depressed, nonsensical, and deep. And no doubt there would be good reasons to discuss those things this week, but we will save those for another day. Instead, let's limit ourselves to what usually does not get people worked up, because it is far too often overlooked or ignored or taken for granted, even though we can say that it, <clears throat> it really is the primary reason God gave us these words describing what happened at the very beginning. Let's talk about the Lord's purposes in giving us marriage. Let's start by emphasizing that word, giving. Marriage and sexuality are a glorious and gracious good gift of God. Contrary to half-joking comments about my old ball and chain, contrary to complaints about being tied down in marriage, contrary to the extolling of single life as freedom, and despite the very real challenges of being married as a sinner to another sinner in a sinful world, marriage is a blessing from a loving Lord for His beloved people. We see that in the care that He takes in setting up everything exactly as He does. God doesn't just speak man and woman into existence and say, oh, okay, you figure it out. No. He very deliberately, with loving design, first creates man and gives him his duties and responsibilities. And then he goes about creating woman in such a way 
that they both recognize each other as special blessings of God to them and recognize the relationship they have been given as part of the perfection and joy of the Creator's master plan, all brought together for their benefit. But it is a sad commentary on our culture that that in trying to respond to so many of the new ideas regarding sex and marriage in our society, Christians have too frequently begun to, to treat this account of the institution of marriage solely as, as law, as God setting the boundaries and rules that we all must follow. Well, it is certainly true that we find His will succinctly spelled out here. It is tragic when we miss the, the beauty the joy and the love in this description of His design for man and woman. Remember that there was no sin yet on that sixth day of creation. So this was all about getting to do what is best and right and wonderful. There is no hint in any of God's design about of, of deprivation or stress or, or unhappiness. Because everything about God's design for marriage and sexuality was perfect there in paradise. But there was something that was not good. If you start reading Genesis from chapter 1, verse 1, God's judgment spoken in verse 18 here jumps out at you, perhaps even shocks you, you may recall that, that at the end of each day's creating work in chapter 1, we hear the refrain, and God saw that it was good. With the sixth day's verdict, when, when everything was finished being, and God saw that it was very good. So when we encounter here, just a few verses later, not good, we have to pay attention. The Lord is making clear with this strong contrast that, that there is something missing, something without which He will not be able to proclaim His creation of man good. Not that God has made a mistake, of course, but that something is unfinished, something is incomplete, and that He wants man to understand this before he brings everything to perfection. So what was it that was not good? Simply that man was alone. The way this is written in the original Hebrew shows that this, this was not just a statement about one man, Adam, but about that first man as representative of all male humans. God declares here that what is good is for man to have a helper suitable for him. Someone who corresponds to him perfectly. Different, not identical, completing him exactly the companion that he needs. And the Lord proceeds then to help Adam see the truth of all this for himself in preparation for the gift of his bride. God brings the animals to the man to see what he would call them. 
Now, was it important that they would all be named already that sixth day of creation? Not particularly. But in doing this task that God set him, Adam would have seen that for every ram, there was a ewe. For every bull, there was a cow. For every rooster, there was a hen. But he would also have seen that there was no creature to match or complete him. He would have seen that something was lacking from his life. Something yet missing from God's glorious design for his creation. For Adam, no helper was found who was a suitable partner for him. So when the Lord God then fashioned a woman from Adam's rib and brought her to him, the man rejoiced. He broke out in in joy to recognize the one who would complete him. The one who would be by his side through life just as she was taken from his side. And this companionship was not to be just a a short-term thing, but a lifelong union. And for every generation afterward, the, the start of something new and unique as bride and groom leave the circles of their parents' families and establish their own new lives and and family together. So thus we see that the first of God's great purposes for marriage was companionship. Husband and wife are to be together and complete each other. Being married is not just about a legal or social status, nor is it about merely sharing an address or a bank account. You are to be actively partners, not just room or bedmates. To spell it out, it means husbands and wives will both talk to and listen to each other. They will share their lives and their days with each other. They will suffer when they are separated, and they will rejoice to come together again. Far too many couples complacently slip into a kind of just existing beside each other. And this is not what God intends, nor is it what we desire for marriage. And speaking of desire, we also see here in this account the the second of the Lord's perfect purposes for bringing husband and wife together. Physical fulfillment. They will become one flesh. Yes, this is speaking about what you think it is. And its inclusion right here at the institution of marriage makes clear that this powerful and pleasurable thing is a beautiful and fulfilling gift. It is special not only in what it is and how it feels and how it connects to people, but also in that it belongs only to marriage. Any joining of the flesh not between a man and a woman married to each other is illegitimate and outside of God's design and blessing. 
And just as companionship is meant to be a lifelong thing between husbands and wives, so also is this one flesh intimacy. The Apostle Paul spells out in 1 Corinthians 7 that neither spouse has the right or, or option of denying the other's desires. Any abstention must be by mutual agreement and for godly reasons. This thing is a wonderful, beautiful gift that, that should never be viewed as an obligation, let alone a drudgery. Neither should it be enjoyed selfishly at the other's expense. It is instead as the Lord designed it and gave it to us, an intimate means of, of connecting deeply, physically, emotionally, even spiritually, with the lifelong companion He has united you to. And that kind of union leads naturally to the third purpose of marriage by God's perfect plan at least for those of the appropriate age and health. It is hinted at in the reference to leaving father and mother, but it was spelled out more clearly in Genesis 1.28, where God instructs the male and female He had created in His own image, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Children are a purpose of marriage from the beginning until the very end. It's worth noting that God provides no, no definition or benchmark so that we could ever say, okay, now you've filled the earth, that's enough. Stop having children now. Nor is there any place in Scripture where this instruction is repealed or amended, even after sin has entered the world and corrupted everything. Individual Christian couples might have good and godly reasons for not having children, not to mention medical issues. But for a husband and wife, or even just one spouse, to selfishly proclaim that they are simply not going to have kids because they don't want to be bothered or because it will interfere with their chosen lifestyles, is to rebel against the Creator in something fundamental. And such sin is good for neither one's eternal welfare nor the health of one's marriage. The best and healthiest course is always to follow the Lord's perfect design and to trust that He is more than capable of blessing your marriage and meeting all your needs just as He has promised. But when there is sin in our marriages there is forgiveness from the grace of the Lord. This is the way it has always been. Genesis 2 sets up Genesis 3. The perfection that we see here provides a stark contrast to its corruption that we see with Adam's and Eve's fall into sin. But even when those two have selfishly ruined everything, the Lord comes to them seeks them out, invites them to repent, and then offers them the promise of salvation with the coming of a son who would crush Satan and take care of their sin and rescue them from death. 
And so it is with us. We all sin in regard to marriage because we are all sinners. Even the unmarried fail to honor God's will for marriage and sexuality in all that they think, do, and say. Maybe it's failure to fulfill the roles God has given to each of us, to husbands and to wives. Maybe it's wrong attitudes that, that fail to recognize the blessings of being married or, or of having our spouse as husband or wife. Maybe it's abuse or infidelity or abandonment or complacency or deliberate separation. Perhaps for the unmarried, it is treating the pleasures and privileges of marriage as something you are free to take and enjoy as you see fit instead of as the Lord has designed. Perhaps it's cheapening the physical union and making it something purely about pleasure. Perhaps it's treating as dirty something that is pure and wonderful. Perhaps it's not respecting the marriages of others through flirtation and other things. But whatever our sins, whether against God's plan for marriage or, or His will in other areas, when we are convicted of those sins by His law, we turn to Him in repentance, admitting our sins and trusting in His grace and mercy for pardon. And He freely gives it for Jesus' sake because He is a God of love and mercy. Because, as our reading from Hebrews reminded us, Jesus suffered death so that by God's grace He might taste death for everyone. He came as our substitute to save us. Christ, the Son of God and the eventual offspring of sin of Eve, came to earth, took on human flesh like ours, lived as one of us, obeyed His Father's will perfectly in our place, and suffered and died a horrible death on the cross in our place. And by doing so, He paid for all of our sins, even our sins against sex and marriage, he defeated death which threatened us and which we deserved for our sins. And He sanctified us. He made us holy with His own perfect righteousness, made us able now to enter heaven, to live with Him and His Father forever. Whatever you have done or left undone, there is forgiveness for you in Jesus Christ. Count on it. And then live in it. Embrace that as, as the power you now have and the freedom you now have to live as God has called, to live, called you to live. Especially in regards to this wonderful gift of sex and marriage. Exhibit the same love and joy and wonder and excitement that Adam expressed when he was presented with this bride, this woman who was perfect for him. Love your husbands and wives. Respect your husbands and wives. Serve one another. Keep Christ at the center of your marriage and as the model for your marriage. Treat the physical 
union of, of flesh is something of great value. It's something never to be cheapened or treated casually. Value what marriage is. Honor marriage in every way. And keep the marriage bed pure. Do all of this because you are God's children. Because you know that His plan is the best one for you. Remember that marriage is not merely some human idea or institution. It was our loving Lord God who brought man and woman together in union at the very beginning as a blessing, a perfect gift with pleasing purposes to meet our deep needs as human beings, as men and women. What God has joined together, let no one separate and let all believers celebrate. Amen. Please rise. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.